Hey, my name is Augustine Colebrook. I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. My focus is on big picture political movements that are happening within the profession, some of the controversial questions, and centering voices that are not being regularly heard. I'm Layla Wyatt. I am a traveling student midwife learning midwifery from cultures and a lineage of midwifery throughout the United States. I'm here to center the voices of students to hear their calling, their pathway, why they chose midwifery, and even share a bunch of birth stories along the way. Greetings, I'm Jamara Amani. I am a midwife, a mom, and a social justice activist. I am here to challenge white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, and anything that keeps people from being their best and living their best selves as we have the human right to do. And I am looking forward to sharing stories of birth justice on this podcast. Hi there, Delmar Bowden. I am non-binary, queer, transgender, Latin, midwife, and post-spectrum female. My focus is on increasing access and equity in midwifery care and midwifery education. Hello, my name is Angie Love. I am a community nurse midwife in Vero Beach, Florida at the practice of Midwife Love. I also do telehealth midwifery through Midwife RX. I'm a mama and I am committed to maintaining birth choices for all people and educating a future generation of midwives because we will not die out. So um, you may know me, my name's Augustine Colebrook and I'm a midwife and a mentor a muse, I like to inspire conversation and creation. And today we are talking uh, with an incredible group of folks about the recent ACOG committee opinion about trauma-informed care. And so we brought in some really fascinating, interesting voices to help uh, discuss and debate this and uh, have a conversation about it. <clears throat> so um, Keisha is here with us. Keisha is my in-house counsel at Midwifery Wisdom uh, Collective. Um, she is both a JAG lawyer um, as well as an IBCLC, and I just love that combination. There aren't too many people in the world who are lawyer, lactation consultants. <laughs> that is my favorite combo. Um, awesome. Keisha has focused her career after the military on um, maternity rights and defending um, women as well as midwives, and so she has a lot to share in the obstetric violence conversation. And I'm really glad you're here, Keisha. Thanks for making the time. Um, Javon Muhammad is here with us and I hope I say that correctly. Is that how you want it to be pronounced? Thank you so much. So Javon is um, a California licensed midwife. And I think you were in Louisiana for some time, if that's true. Um, but the really um, exciting part that I am excited to, sh to uh, invite you on this conversation is because of being a chief executive officer for a multi-site federally qualified health center. Um, you have been responsible for opening the first FQHC center that was also operated as a birth center in California. That's very exciting. Um, and was led by a CPM. Javon currently lives in San Francisco and she serves as the president and chief executive officer of RAMS, a large mental health organization with a $25 million budget. Um, and you're a mama and a grandma like me um, and has a lot of experience jumping in lots of arenas, lots of fields. And so I'm excited to hear from you. And she's also about to defend her thesis in the morning. 
at Bessier <laughs> University. <laughs> so she's taken all of her beautiful time and brought it here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I'm also really excited to in, in, introduce Nathan Riley. If you guys don't know, Nathan is a, a veritable force here in the podcasting world with his own podcast, Obico you know, Wino, and uh, dissects the ACOG committee opinions as well as other details on his podcast um, and always pairs them with a lovely glass of wine. Uh, we're doing too early of a podcast for there probably to be wine, <laughs> but uh, there, yes, coffee, cheers. Um, Nathan is uh, not only a board certified OBGYN, but he also works in the palliative care realm, seeing um, folks on the on the entrance and the exit of life. And so, Nathan, I'm really excited to to hear your um, input and to pick your brain about the the info that you've learned in the palliative care world, um, because there lots of physicians act more like midwives, and um, we're sort of interested to hear your experience there. Thank you so much for being here. And then uh, Dr. Tracy Vogel is with us as well. And Tracy, uh, I, was, I was hoping, will you introduce yourself because there is so much there um, that I don't wanna get it wrong. <laughs> sure, um, I have been a practicing anesthesiologist for over 20 years now and with a subspecialty in obstetric anesthesia. And like most of you on this panel, I started doing something very different along the way too. Uh, I became a sexual assault counselor about six years ago. And what it did for me is it helped to put context to what I was seeing um, as a, kind of a disturbing trend in obstetric care, which was um, obstetric trauma. And so I have put a lot of time and effort research teaching um, into looking at how birth affects trauma and how trauma affects birth. And I'm trying to bring more centers of excellence into play with using trauma-informed care principles and doing anything I can to hopefully one day just minimize or even eliminate obstetric trauma for patients. So, so awesome. And you're in the Pittsburgh area, right? Or Philadelphia? Correct. Yes, I'm in, in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Okay, great. Well, we have a, a nice crew from around the nation, um, Arkansas, California. Tennessee, right, Nathan? Kentucky, Kentucky, for Kentucky me. but I'm from Pittsburgh. That. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. Well, I um, I would love to direct listeners to go listen to the podcast you hosted, Nathan, with Tracy um, uh, a couple uh, weeks ago, months ago, when was that? A couple months ago, I think, oh, yeah. No, yeah. 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 Um, Cause that was a really fascinating listen. Well, so without further ado, this, um, this committee opinion has um, been celebrated by some and really, really uh, criticized by others. And um, I guess I'd love to go to you, Javon, and ask, do you, can you say why some people are criticizing this committee opinion? I can try, <laughs> I can say, uh, I can say some of my hesitancy. Um, first, I just wanna say yay. Right, because at least the issue is being acknowledged. Like the 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 fact that we are we come into care with trauma is being acknowledged by ACOG. I think some of the concern or some maybe of the anger may be that it took a long time. Other people have been doing this, other systems have been set up, and it's almost like ACOG waited until they couldn't wait anymore and made a pivot because it's the thing, right? Like it's, 
it's just like in the workforce, we, we were talking about cultural competency and now we're talking about DEI and you almost have to be in DEI or there's something wrong with your organization. And, and it feels like that timing is happening with ACOG. Um, I also, uh, you know, Patch Adams, to quote Patch Adams, he said, uh, they don't teach compassion in medical school. So um, I believe that. <laughs> and I, I work with uh, many physicians as the leader of FQACs. And it's something that we struggle with when we're trying to get our program across, like, right, bedside manner, but sincerity and, and compassion. And so um, for me, what the language is very academic and I struggle to see how it will be applicable in the clinical environment. For example, we have many, many assessments right now. Going to your physician's office looks like the first 20 minutes being assessed in primary care. Um, am I gonna do the PHQ-2, the PHQ-9? Are we doing SPERT? Um, you know, is it ACEs? And so by the time, it's very disjointed, right? Because no physician has time um, based on this American system of healthcare to do all of this in exam room. So then your care becomes very mechanical, right? Go see this person and the medical assistant who may not be qualified to do any of this is going to administer these assessments and somehow communicate that to your physician. And then in 15 minutes, you're going to somehow address these things and what you can't address, you're going to send out to another person who may connect you with services. It's all very disjointed. And so um, something that um, may have good intent, I, I struggle to see how it'll be rolled out and why it even needs to ro be rolled out. I think for me, my greatest concern is, um, putting more money or more practice to a practice that's not working, right? Instead of expanding care to include midwifery, especially traditional midwifery, a community-based midwifery, because it takes care of most of this. And in an integrated system, all of the pieces align, right? This midwife is in the community, in the home, um, kind of organically addressing trauma instead of announcing it and really getting to the meat of the bone instead of assessing. Um, and then it becomes, uh, I, I feel like the, the person is surrounded with great care and when in need goes to the OBs or um, there's a special kind of OB that gets this and knows it. But in, in my experience, it's a little bit uh, more difficult than just saying we're going to address trauma and so that may be, I haven't been in conversations with people about um, how they feel about this, but when I read it, I thought like, oh, now we're gonna announce this and it's gonna be a thing. And many of us have been doing this uh, already. We Midwives have acknowledged for years that there are triggers you know, that women have and something may affect their birth and something may affect their prenatal care. We have been, um, trained in, in a grassroots way to uh, support support family. And so I, I'm not saying, of course, that that can't happen in uh, the obstetrics world with OBGYNs, but I am saying I struggle to see how it will be rolled out and not be mechanical and feel sincere. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really important point. It's like, you can say whatever, but if there's no way to apply it, um, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Keisha, can we go to you for a second? Um, you have actually worked with um, birthers, postpartum people, women who have experienced um, trauma as a result of their care. Um, what's your feeling on this committee opinion? How do you think it will affect women? I mean, I, um, I don't think it's gonna have any impact. I mean, I think we have a committee opinion about informed consent as well. And it seems like it's hard to just get informed consent. You know, one of the, the basic, um, I think, tenets of good solid medical care is, is informing someone of all the risk and benefits so they can make a truly, you know, um, a true decision. So I don't know, I haven't heard a lot of people talking about this uh, committee opinion. So um, I didn't know about it actually until you told me. Um, I just don't have a whole lot of, um, I just don't put a whole lot of um, trust in ACOG to, to enforce what they put down in committee opinions or implement them in a meaningful way. I think it's, you know, it's nice to talk about it. You know, glad you acknowledged it, you know, so many years later, but I just don't know what practical effect it will have. And I feel like for what I do in the legal world, it doesn't, it just doesn't mean a lot, you know? So um, I actually agree with what um, Javon was talking about with the community-based midwifery and integrating more. Um, I mean, I think you were spot on in what you said. So I totally agree. Let's go to our, our OBGYN. Um, Nathan, will you tell us what your first thought was when you read this? Well, first off, I'm standing in the shadow of giants here. These are all people who have a lot more experience in the space, um, especially women who, you know, many of you have gone through the, the sort of system yourselves. So um, I want to acknowledge that. And I, I'm a relatively young physician, but this is part of this topic is really kind of what forced me out of the hospital-based practice of OBGYN. Um, and so I'll just kind of start off by saying, I think that there's far more, there's far stronger cultural influences at play here. I had this conversation with Brad Boots Taylor, who's, who's in Atlanta, and he and I had, you know, a very, very long riff, an hour and a half long riff on just how strong these cultural pressures are to do things in a certain way in the hospital. And, and you as an OBGYN are trained all this time. And now suddenly, pow, we get this official words coming down from the powers that be that say you can now practice differently. And it's, it's going to take a lot more work. I will also, you know, I will also say that I think it's nice that ACOG is, is finally kind of standing up and putting words on paper. Um, but we know that, um, that providing just these simple questionnaires, as Javon had mentioned, like these little inventories, they don't really mean anything unless we're actually going to start training our interns and our residents and, and our OB anesthesiologists, like everybody on the team needs to kind of get behind this. And, um, and you know, the other thing I'll say is that checklists, they, they sort of dehumanize the experience, like in the, in the surgical world, which is what OBGYNs are, they are surgeons these checklists that Tracy and I have gotten so comfortable with in the OR to make sure that we're not cutting off the wrong arm or, you know, in, implanting the wrong eyeball or something like that. The, the, the checklist experience has dehumanized in many ways, the, the, the sort of sacred nature of birth. Um, and that's, it's not to say that checklists don't have a role, but I think that the implementation of checklists and something that is not a medical procedure is really part of it's part of that culture that I was talking about. It's, it's, it's kind of like missing the point altogether, you know? I mean, we kind of saw this with breastfeeding, like suddenly some 
old white guys at Harvard say it's good to breastfeed and women all over the world for thousands of years have been saying, uh, yeah, no, duh. Um, so, so I'll, you know, that, that's, that's kind of where I fall with this. I, I think it's a really nice step in the right direction. And before I knew that Tracy was going to be here, I sent her an email last night and I said, Tracy, have you seen this committee opinion? Cause Augustine, when you asked me, it's similar to, to Kesha. Um, I didn't, um, I hadn't even known that it was, <laughs> I didn't even know that it was published. I had enough people tell me about it. And I was like, okay, ACOG's saying something about something that's really important. Like, we'll, we'll get to that at some point. But, um, when I read it, it was just like, uh-huh, tell me, tell me more, you know? So I'm hoping that this is going to help generate some steam and some momentum. Um, certainly not in the wrong direction, but I, I do, I am a little bit wary that by now this being in the space, sort of like, is it Kesha or Keisha? I'm sorry. Keisha. 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 Um, it's sort of like what Keisha said, like we have these beautiful elaborations on the importance of of, of informed decision-making and, and, and um, upholding a patient's right to refuse care. And those, like, I, I don't think anybody in the OBGYN world even knows that those exist. If they did, then it would be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I can't believe this is what we're talking about now. I mean, it would be really stirring up more conversation. So I imagine that this one's going to kind of fall flat, but I am super happy, Augustine, that you're actually bringing people together to talk about it. Cause I think that's where we're, we're going to get the most, uh, you know, momentum from. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and speaking of which, I, I want to go to you, Tracy, and um, I, I want to bring out a distinction that hopefully you can expand on. Um, this committee opinion, when it talks about trauma, is this big bubble, right? And trauma is so many different things. Uh -huh. um, and so when they're talking about patients who come to an OBGYN's office with existing trauma, I felt like that was a really exciting part of the, the committee opinion because there are people with PTSD and CPTSD and sexual abuse history and just really bad ACE scores, right? And so like they, they're coming in and they're, they're experiencing triggers or they're being traumatized as a result of a history of trauma. And I thought that was very exciting. But I think what most detractors of this committee opinion are saying is that ACOG didn't, or this committee opinion specifically, did not address the experience of being traumatized by birthing this time at this birth with an OB-JOIN. And so Tracy, I wonder if you would comment on these distinctions. Absolutely. I, I do want to pull up. I have the um, committee opinion next to me. There is Please. a, there are two sentences, I think, that do talk about birth trauma and what happens in the, in the actual birth itself at that time. Even though most of this committee opinion is like you said, it addresses women who come with trauma from the past. And, it, and it's really important to understand that trauma is past, present and future. And what happens in that birth, that birth period is going to impact them going in the future, of course, with their bonding, their breastfeeding, their relationships with their children's behaviors, et cetera. Um, but it does mention, um, and I'm just going to pull it up here, that it could be from, what did they say here? Any number of, of experiences during the clinical encounter um, could contribute to this. So sorry, let me just pull it up here for a second. But like I said, that was all that was in here. Um, they write, the term obstetric violence is a non-medical term used to refer to situations in when the pregnant person experiences disrespect, 
indignity or abuse from healthcare systems that can stem from or lead to loss of autonomy. And then they also mentioned specific to obstacles um, such as unexpected outcomes, procedures, obstetric emergencies, and neonatal complications. That's it. So two sentences. So overall, I, I'm with Nathan. I, when I read this, it came out right before I did a lecture to ACOG. And I was able to include it into my slide so that anybody that listened to my lecture would also know that these guidelines are now there. I just think it's a little more support for what we're trying to bring in to this change in culture. Is it enough? Absolutely not. Like you said, we've seen so many opinions, just like we create all these protocols or policies within a hospital, but they don't always get executed. We're missing that, that leadership, that local leadership that says, hey, this is important. Now we need to make sure everyone acts on our policies or what we consider to be the best way to do things, your best practices. Um, and the other thing I'd like to comment on, I think it does set the stage for what we need to do with survivors of previous trauma, but I would love to see in the fourth R that they, they talk about to resist, it says resist re-traumatization. How about if it said resist traumatization and re-traumatization? That would encompass a lot, that would force action. Um, the other thing I, I just have to say, the principles that are in trauma-informed care should be applied to every single woman, period. Why are we, why do they have to come in already traumatized for us to use these principles? It's all about showing respect, learning to listen, understanding a woman in her cultural context and finding out what's best for her and how she sees herself in that birthing um, per, from her perspective on birth and how she sees herself as a mother. Absolutely. And also <clears throat> it, it, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to say this exactly right, but that, that idea centers the provider's assessment of the person rather than the person's felt experience. Like who, who says that they have to be identified as a previous trauma? Like maybe they're not even identifying, maybe they're not even aware. I mean, when you really uncover the ACEs study, you realize how many of us are walking around with childhood trauma that's unaddressed and not even acknowledged, right? So I totally agree. Everyone needs this applied to them. Mm -hmm. Tracy, will you tell us a little bit how you got into this work? Because like all of us, we all work in different fields and, and sort of straddle different worlds. And you are a especially interesting straddle. Um, an anesthesiologist who works to prevent obstetric trauma. That's amazing. Tell me how you got into that. Um, well, yes, my husband calls me a misfit as well. He's an anesthesiologist. And um, I am partly in the psychology world, so it is a little different. But now I'd say when I first started where I am now, I, I started practicing exclusively obstetric anesthesia, which gave me an opportunity to, to see trends, to follow things on a daily basis. And I didn't know what I was seeing. Um, at the same time in my personal life, uh, my children were watching 13 Reasons Why when that came out. Mm -hmm. My son, as part of a, a high school reading assignment, was reading Missoula, which is about the rape crisis on college campuses. And at that time, I was given a referral for a patient that had PTSD. And she taught me so much that I was so unaware of. And all of those pointed me in this direction that I needed to give back to my community. I wanted to do something, volunteer. So I ended up training as a sexual assault counselor. 
And that was 40 hours plus additional volunteer work, observation, things like that. And that gave me a lot of context then to what I was seeing in my clinical practice. And I realized, wow, I just learned more about what trauma survivors look like. I learned about women. I learned about behaviors. And not to say that women are the only ones that, that experience sexual assault, of course. But in our practice, most of my patients were women. Um, I did have some birthing persons too, but it was just, um, it, it all made sense. And then I realized I needed to learn more. I needed to dig deeper. I needed to do research. And um, I think it was to Keisha's point, um, or maybe even Javon's, the psychiatrists, psychologists, birth advocates, midwives, they've known about what we're calling trauma-informed care, those kind of principles. You've been doing it for years, years. But that knowledge and information has just not made it into our clinical realm. And so I just started and I had already been running a clinic that saw high risk obstetric patients with physical comorbidities. And so I said, well, let's have more of these women come in that have fears of childbirth or serious birth trauma. Let me just start to work with them. And it has evolved now into, and I'm happy to say that we now have probably the first perinatal trauma-informed care clinic that I have set up to make this more of a structured flow where these women get time to talk about what's happened to them. I create a plan with them. I coordinate with their obstetricians and whoever else they need to hopefully get them a positive birth experience. So it, yeah. it has morphed into so many things. I started a website, come onto these awesome podcasts whenever I can. Just, I, I just want to put a shout out to say, it's not just for the patient. It's amazing for them. The outcomes are incredible. It's amazing for us as providers. When we kind of share that control a little bit, it, it's much more fulfilling. You get, I think, just a better overall experience for everyone. Wow. I love what you just said, um, that it is for everyone. Everyone's benefiting from this. I really love that. Um, and and you also said something right at the end that really got me. Uh, if we share more of the of the control, more of the power, and I think this is at the root of this whole debate, right? It's really about power and control. Trauma, sexual abuse is about power and control, and obstetric violence is about power and control. Mm -hmm. This lack of informed decision making is about power and control. And of course, if we want to go like a few layers deeper, like we're kind of in this misogynistic patriarchal culture, which is about power and control. And how do we as clinicians work to shift the conversation, to shift the entire culture um, when the larger culture, the larger container um, is, is about this inequity, this, this lack of shared, I mean, it's not, I, I actually, shared decision-making actually rubs me the wrong way too, because if we believe that you're a sovereign being who has a complete authority and agency over your own body, then there's nothing shared about it. It's actually um, the provider's responsibility to serve the person they're working for. And I think this is what midwives do so well. This is why midwives catch a lot of the traumatized folk is because they see that they can come to us and be held and be heard and be understood. And a huge part of that gift or that skill is time. So Tracy, in your clinic, you're creating more time. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you kind of a nuts and bolts conversation question is like, 
So time limits on providers with patients is because of insurance reimbursement. Um, that's who's limiting time. So how are you doing it from an administrative perspective? Because right now, like 10 minutes or less is kind of the standard. How are, how are you working that? Um, well, it has taken years and currently I work pro bono for what I'm doing with these clinic visits. Um, it is a labor of love and it's amazing. Yeah. So it is this whole project that we're calling this trauma-informed care project. It's, it goes through different institutes in our hospital and all the institutes have been willing to support it in some way. And then I recently just got some grant funding to do mm -hmm. the research and to do some teaching. So mm -hmm. ultimately what will happen, and, and we are trying to negotiate with payers as well, which is why mm -hmm. for the ACOG um, guidelines coming out or this opinion is also going to help to show insurance mm -hmm. payers that this, this is important stuff. So ultimately, yeah. I want to do the research to gather data to show the time up front spent pays off in, in big, big dollars. You know, not, I mean, I'm more concerned about the patient's well being, but they want to see payout in terms of less visits to the emergency department with complications, maybe less visits for mental health, um, improvements in their own bonding, et cetera. You know, all of that stuff down, downstream. Um, but I'm going yeah. to be doing the research this year with the grant funding that came from our Highmark Foundation, which I'm incredibly grateful for. That's so exciting. hopefully going to show that and then it'll be sustainable with some reimbursement. Um, as well as a lot of these women, if they have to have a cesarean section, they request me and I can then do their cases and my anesthesia department will reimburse me for those services. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. it's, you know, it, you have to be willing to accept a, a much lower salary too, but it is yeah. the most meaningful well, job I've ever had. So, so meaningful. And what you're doing is really a proof of concept model. And it will be very yeah. exciting when you get on the other side of this. I want to go to Javon because Javon has worked as an administrator in these payer situations before. Javon, what's your experience? What's your opinion around this? And you're muted. I so, know. I, I have to go back because I wanted to speak on the uh, issue of control. I was thinking it uh, when you when you brought it up, uh, Dr. Bogle, and um, I feel like this this committee opinion for me is just an extension of control because I feel like the pivot was how do we keep this control? Okay, we have to do this thing now, but this thing. Uh, which, you know, is dealing with trauma-informed systems is not supported by meat. Like there's nothing tangible in it, but it's like, we have to acknowledge it so that we can maintain this control as ACOG. And I don't think that it has to ultimately end up as a negative thing. I just, I want to acknowledge that because this is about control. And, <clears throat> and in medical school, we are not supporting the idea of breaking the control where how do you implement these things when we get people out of medical school who do not have the skill set to support a trauma-informed system? I can countless times, I've been trying to do things around um, reducing the C-section rate and talking about really simple, easy things, uh, easy ways to transform the system. And that is like, it is so difficult for uh, my OBs to grasp, to change, to do. They are trained to do it one way. 
And I think that the only way that some of something like this could bring could gain any ground is to bring it back to medical school and to make the changes that we need to make. We have to go back. Once we get a doctor, it is difficult to transform the way they deliver care. In fact, when we talk about disparities and outcomes for Black women, I cannot tell you how many young, excited, vibrant OBs that I get that come in and I'm trying to encourage them to come over to the FQHC side where you're going to make less money because we don't really fund things that make a difference. Like we, that's not the way this system works is why um, Dr. Vogel doesn't have that funding, why she has to be pro bono because we don't fund things like that because it's about control. And so I will sadly say when this person who I can't judge them, like financially, they can't do it, right? They have debt, they all of these things. But I'm always like, now we have to wait 10 years until this person gets so frustrated in the system. And then I'll see them again because they'll come back and they'll say, you know, I tried this, I tried that, I joined this. And none of these things help to improve the outcomes for black women or burdened people, none of them. And so now we've lost 10 years, which is why we can't make the advancement that we need to address outcomes. How do you just get out of school where you aren't even learning a lot about why there would be disparities and outcomes for certain groups of people. And then you become an authority on doing that, on being that person. Like how, how does that happen? And so for me, the very, the, the opinion is about control because the sincerity is not there or these things would be funded. Like there, like, so, so for me, waiting is a trigger because I feel like that's the story and the reality for Black people in the medical system and in other, in other systems. It's like, wait for us another 10 years while we get the data. But I am the data. That's me. <laughs> like, uh -huh. you know, I, I'm the one who, in this, in this um, instance, I really am the data. I was a teen mom. You know, I, I, I had a lot of, I scored nine on the ACEs. <laughs> Just say that. And I went into care and I never ever learn about anything that was happening to me because I don't believe my provider thought that I I was I should know I'm a teenager I have Medicaid you know why would why would she invest in me uh, we we don't have the same background I think it's difficult I don't think she had the skills and so every time I went to my visit I got those heart tones I got that measure I never really understood why they measured my abdomen during that entire, uh, you know, period of time. And, and more uh, concerning for me is nobody ever asked me who did that to me? Where is the person who did this to you? Let's talk about that. I've never seen, you know, there were so many reasons for a person to dig deep, but she didn't get that training. She didn't know how to do it. She was coming to work to do her job. And so um, that is where I get concerned about things like this. It's like in this world today, in 2021, uh, many, especially young people, are talking about dismantling systems. And medicine has to be one of those systems where we take a look at, at the foundation of care. And, there, and in that dismantling, it has to, the question has to come up who owns this care? 
Like what is shared care? Who owns the care? Like we talked about informed consent. If I tell you I don't want something, I don't want it, you know, explain to me why some people do it, why some people don't, and then honor my decision. Don't go to the nurse's station and talk about me. Don't call me a non-compliant patient. You know, don't put me on a track to a C-section. The other day I was, it was about one in the morning and I got a call from a friend whose daughter was uh, in labor and she wants to know all of these things. And then she said, oh yeah, but she just got an epidural. And I said, can I just be honest with you? You, you called me too late. Like I really can't help you at this point because it's a medicalized birth and whatever happens, happens. Like it, it just happens. And so um, I just, I was felt really- Davon, I, I want to just jump in really quickly. I want to throw a statistic in there. Um, the cesarean rate in the United States ranges from 7.1 to 66.5% across all the hospitals in the United States. And I think this statistic is one of the most descriptive of this power and control, because that is, neither of those numbers is evidence-based. It's probably somewhere in the middle. But the fact that there's this massive variation points to the idea that it's it's not standardized, it's not evidence-based, and that there is not informed decision-making happening, that it's just habit and policy. And there's some people advocating for this and some people advocating for that. And I think when when you when you talk about this friend who called you, um, you know, unless she's with providers that are actively campaigning for normal, um, unless she's with providers that are actively with that person saying, let me walk you through this. Let me give you as much information as I have so that you can make true informed decision making. It is like you end up on this conveyor belt, which goes back to that power and control piece. And um, I, I just wanna read this section out of the, the committee opinion. Feelings of physical and psychological safety are paramount to effective care relationships with trauma survivors. An obstetrician gynecologist should create safe physical and emotional environments for patients and staff. And I think this could be at the root of what doesn't exist right now. Um, and I think this is where I want to, to brainstorm the solutions. So, um, Javon, you know, you, you have so many solutions and you've been working tirelessly for so long to get physicians into the system to believe in this model. Tracy, you're starting to create a trauma-informed model. Nathan, obviously you exited the system because you wanted it to be different. And then Keisha, you've worked with folks who um, have been really damaged by the system. Let's brainstorm some solutions. What does psychological and physical safety look like? in an obstetric patient relationship office environment. And how can we, how can we give some actual tools for how to create safety? Because those of us who, who you know, all of us have worked in a place where we've created that safety. What does it look like and how do we share that? That's my question. I wanna just kind of piggyback off of what Javon said, because as you were talking about your experience and the measurements and not being told really what was being done, I just thought back <laughs> to when I was younger, I used to go to the health clinic for annual exams, pap smears and birth control in my town. And I remember that the doctor, Dr. Braswell was there for years. I just, I was never told in my entire life, what was happening just in an annual exam. 
if I really thought about it, I don't know why you're examining me with your fingers. I don't know really what the pap smear is looking for. I mean, I remember as an adult having a conversation with people and it was like a light bulb going off that you're really just looking for abnormal cells. Like it's not like a check for STDs or anything like that. Like actually what a pap smear is. So I think safety primarily is about awareness and knowing what's happening in the space that you're in, in that moment. And so what Javon was saying is it's a good start just to tell us what you're doing and why. That's the most simple thing. And you know what you're doing and you know why. So all you have to do is open your mouth and say it to the human being in front of you. And that your fingers are in. Uh (laughs) Say it to them. Yeah. 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 I, um, for years I have, I have done this trauma informed care myself. And one of the sort of highlights of my care model that I get feedback from, and I've practiced nationally and internationally is I, when we talk about pap smears, we talk about um, cell collection and this whole thing. I say, would you like to do your own pap smear? And then I position a client in such a way and talk them through the procedure that they can insert the speculum and they can use the, the cryobroom brush to collect the cells and they can have total control over this process of checking out their own body. We have a mirror, we have all of the education and information so that they understand why they're doing it and then have authority over it because there's nothing maybe more vulnerable than anything you're doing with the cervix. It's the most hidden organ, right? So why we couldn't center that. And, and the feedback that I get from clients is, is like, I had no idea. I had no idea it was this simple, first of all, or I had no idea that why it was even happening. I love, I love that feedback, Keisha. And, and it's like a mic drop moment when you say that, like people just need to be told what's happening. And that's of course a huge hallmark of midwifery care, which is again, why we catch so many folks that are fed up with the system. But one safety piece is just inform information. It's just what this is and why we're doing it right. Tracy, what's another piece of the safety around physical or psychological care? Um, I have so many things I've done over the last couple of years, but one of the things I started doing through COVID, and I can't believe I hadn't done this as much before, given how many women do end up in our C-section rooms, I decided to do virtual operating room tours. because women are just not informed and are not able to ask questions and get that information about what might happen in order to identify some issues or really just prepare them. And so we'll take a session and we'll just go on a Zoom call and I will take them through a simulated operating room, scan it, talk to them about what the flow of the day might look like. I talked to them about, you you can have your significant other there with you, which is something I do. It's another practice that I never separate the two, even for a spinal or an epidural for a C-section. They are together. Um, These are all, by the way, um, bending of of existing rules that I've just challenged and said, this doesn't make any sense. And there's good evidence to show that this is important. So nobody seems to fight me anymore. And so we've, we've made that a habit of just bringing them through the operating room. And I've noticed even in hospitals that have beautiful videoed tours that they can put on their websites, they're all of the laboring suites. No one ever seems to talk about that operating room 
And there are ways to make it less mysterious, less frightening, little more controllable for the patient, especially when they know I don't strap anybody's arms down, for example. This is where you're gonna be seated. This is where your significant other is going to be. You are allowed to say, no, these are your choices. Um, I'm gonna keep you warm. And the other thing I do is I keep them covered. I call it the, the Vogel spa routine where I'm just tired of, of after a spinal women becoming or being rendered totally naked. But the gown comes up. I said, no, we're not doing that. We only uncover the parts that need to be uncovered at that moment. And so that's what we do. And they just tend to feel so much safer knowing it ahead of time and then experiencing it when it happens. Oh, you have just like, that was like a book of things. <laughs> Sorry, I, I went on. I could talk for a no, long time, but I'll sit back. I know you could. That's <laughs> why we wanted you here in this conversation. It's so fantastic. Um, but if we could sum down like everything that you just described into one little container, it would be this humanistic care, right? Is you're, you're treating them like humans who deserve dignity and respect. Um, so a long time ago, I learned that all birth plans are actually saying the exact same thing. They're saying, I want dignity and respect. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the actual choices are. That's the foundation of birth plans, right? Um, when did we lose dignity and respect in obstetrics and how can we get it back? Nathan, will you um, share with us? There's dignity and respect in dying, which is this other field you occupy. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's been so many great things that have been said. And really the one sort of bastion of hope in medicine, I think, lies in hospice and palliative care, which is my fellowship training. So, so I did four years OBGYN, became an OBGYN attending, did all kinds of crazy stuff in that world while I was in fellowship. And then I, was, I came out to Louisville, and now I actually do full-time hospice while I'm kind of preparing to embark into the home birth and sort of a private consulting world so to speak, um, because of everything we've talked about in hospitals. And, you know, I just, I, I'll send you the, I sent you a link to the, an article I wrote for the PaliMed journal, which is the title was pretty darn clear. Obstetrics and gynecology desperately needs palliative medicine. And the reason I say that is the way that you approach, let's say decisions around the end of life process, which I can't think of anything that, that is comparable to birth the way that that death is in the sense that it is this thing that we're going to go through once the roller coaster reaches that that apex we're going down and like we don't get a choice as to whether or not that happens what we do get a choice in is how does this process look and in this article it's not even just about birth it's actually how can we talk about basic miscarriage or how can we talk about life-limiting prenatal diagnoses better because OBGYNs are dealing with not only advanced cancers like ovarian cancer, your OBGYN might be the first person to tell you, I think we need to get you to see an oncologist. Um, how do you deliver that news? What is the first thing out of your mouth? Has the person even dressed from the waist down? Have they even redressed and maybe been taken off of that crinkly paper in your bright UV you know, lit room? Or are you in stirrups saying, oh my gosh, I just don't know. You're waving the wand around. I don't see a heartbeat. And not realizing that there's this thing inside of your patient, you're not even looking at them, you're staring at a screen and they are ex potentially excited about the pregnancy. So, so the way I view this is not even just in maternity care, like women's healthcare is fraught with problems around not just communication, but how are we, ad how are we addressing the gravity of some of the things that we're doing? And that's really like where my life path is going. So while I'm doing comprehensive women's healthcare, in my own way now, as opposed to the way that, you know, 
a big hospital system wants to do it. I'm actually using the tools that I use for my end of life counseling. And it's not even just end of life. It's sort of like, hey, you have this horrible diagnosis. You're going to go get extensive chemo and radiation and all of that. It's my job as a palliative care physician to make sure that you're not too nauseated to even get to your chemo appointments or that your mom and dad understand what's happening with this or that your kids know, you know what's going on here. And it all starts with just asking like, how are you? <laughs> and then taking a pause and allowing them to answer. So I am a master at just sitting in silence. Like I will out silence you all day long because I know that there's something brewing and I need to give you permission and space to say the things that are important. And really at the hallmark of palliative medicine and hospice care is listen, again, we can't avoid the fact that we have to die. The only vote you get is how do you want that time to look from now until then. And once you give them permission to talk about that, you get the tears, you get the shakes, you get the hugs, you get all of the gushy stuff that people haven't been given time to talk about. And to, to go back to what Tracy said, if, you were, if, if physicians and nurses and midwives and doulas and everybody in between, anesthesiologists, surgeons, if everybody is given permission to actually just, and the time, as Javon said, like, there's not a lot of time and money as Tracy's experienced for this type of care. And hopefully there someday will, but in palliative medicine, we're paid by time. We're not paid by RVUs, how many procedures we do. How much time did you spend? I spent three hours. We're going to pay you three hours worth of time for a physician to sit with you and help you navigate this complex medical decision-making process and the, and just sort of to, to sit with the gravity of, of the situation. So what, what I would contribute to this conversation is, man, there are some basic communication skills that we, we could be teaching in medical school. Um, uh, we should certainly be teaching it in um, residency. I shouldn't have an attending sitting me down in my third year demonstrating what good bedside manner is when I'm looking at them. And I'm like, if, if, if you were my doctor, that is not how I would want things done. But I'm being graded based on their evaluation. So I kind of, they're like, okay, now you sit at the edge of the bed. Now you turn to your patient. Now you make eye contact. You nod, <laughs> you nod, you give them understanding. You show empathy. And it's like, like if I did that with my wife, I would get, <laughs> I would get knocked in the head with a shoe. So, um, I mean, these are very, very basic uh. things that, that if anybody ever wants to talk about like these communication skills, like, you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I can be a darn good communicator when stuff really matters. And it's really, really important throughout complex illness at the end of life and birth and throughout women's healthcare. Like OBGYNs have a lot of responsibility. So we need to do better. We really do from the very, very beginning as Javon said. Mm. Mm. So much there, my gosh. Well, Javon, do you want to come back on and, and um... yeah, I want to talk about a doctor I know in uh, Oakland. Uh, her name is Dr. Laisha Pierce and she used to be uh, the interim chair over at Highland Hospital. And one of the things that I loved about her was she thought a lot about safety and she supported the concept of, you know, integrated care, um, bringing all of the providers together. And so one thing that I'll never forget is uh, during her time as the chair, she invited all the community midwives into the hospital. And so since she was teaching residents, when she was teaching suturing, she brought the midwives in. And her explanation was, these are the people in the community who are transporting to our hospital. 
So since we're very concerned about how we receive a transport and we're very concerned about their skill level and their education, we're going to bring them in and, you know, we're going to make sure that they know this thing or that thing. And it was uh, a great experience because then we were able to um, get to know one another, be really comfortable when we called L&D for a transport. Uh, the person we were that was receiving our uh, client did not judge us or speak down, you know, to the client about us when they came. It just really created this um, supportive environment. And I think that increases safety. Um, and we don't think a lot about, because we don't normalize things. It's like you, you gave the example of, you know, the person being able to do their own pap smear. I, I know that. I've learned that. I get that. You would be looked at as a crazy person by a group of OBGYNs, because that's, they're just, it's a control thing and it's not intentional often. It's like, I don't think people say I'm trying to control your life. I'm saying that that is the way the education is set up. That is the way society views uh, medicine. And that's the patient doctor relationship. Like you can't even dip your urine. Some people are concerned about centering. You know, this person doesn't know how to weigh themselves when they come in for a visit. They don't know how to dip their urine. Can everything be an educational thing? Um, so I, that, that's something that, um, not only brought safety into the environment, but it also brought camaraderie and it was really great, not only for the client or the patient, but for the providers, because we began to support each other. This, uh, physician, I had to bring her to Louisiana because right now I'm back in San Francisco, but I'm coming back from two years in Louisiana, where we rank 49th in outcomes, second to Mississippi, but we sometimes battle <laughs> for the worst. And so, um, you know, just to talk about a midwife in Lake Charles was traumatizing for the OBGYNs. And I had to bring someone to say, here's how my life works at Highland Hospital, you know, with these midwives. Here's how your life can become easier so that you can focus on some of the things that we're really going to need you on. Like, here's how we really support patient safety. And so I think, um, I don't, and I don't, you know, not being an insider, I don't know how to do that, but normalizing things like you, you own your health in, in the way that we spoke about palliative care. Like, how do you want this to look? How do you want it to happen? Um, instead of judging the person. I, I just, I get stuck there because there's so many conversations I have to have with people about allowing a person to make a choice. I'm so sorry that you don't feel comfortable taking care of this person who doesn't want an ultrasound or who doesn't want to take that glucose tolerance test, but they don't want to do it. So how about we be amazing providers and we learn about alternatives? How about we start thinking about jelly beans or other ways to test glucose and it be okay? Like who said it's not okay? To me, that's the challenge within the system is um, reminding people that you really don't, you don't own a person and you don't get, to, if they don't want it, they don't want it. And as long as they have received informed consent and if they feel that strongly, I, my children didn't get the hep B vaccine when they were born you would have thought that I was killing the children right then, right then when there, I, I sat and I talked to our um, surgeon general. She, at the time she was a new doctor in California. And I said, why do you want to give? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm angry. Like, why do you want to give 
the baby's hepatitis B vaccines at birth when they're like new onto the planet. Like they're just brand new people. And she was like, really, it's a public health means, right? We have access to your baby then. We know we're going to need to do this series. So we start then. I think that's a very silly reason for giving it's a, slippery a newborn slope, right? baby. Like, can can they just here? have a chance? I'm not, I'm saying it's called practicing medicine for a reason. And I don't think we want to acknowledge that. So it's great that all your data shows that this baby will be fine. But if I don't think my baby will be fine, getting a vaccine that contains aluminum at birth, then just support me and say, I'll see you in two years. I'll see you when you, it's my baby. <laughs> it's my baby. I get so frustrated about that. And then having yeah. to defend your choices, like I said, when they're not uh, choices around immediate death, I'm, I'm taking safety out of, but I don't want to do it. And so um, I, I just wanted to give that safety example. I you, thought she was very so great. revolutionary in her work and she's still at Highland, but no longer the chair. That's amazing. That is revolutionary. And integration, this piece of, of respectful care and integration is a huge part of, of safety. Keisha, will you jump in for a second? Um, when you have worked with folks who have experienced non-safety, what are they complaining about? What, what do they really wish they had? I mean, everyone's story is so different, but- um, Is there a theme? I think disrespect shows up a lot, a lot of, you know, punishing people for their choices that don't align with what the medical establishment thinks needs to be done. A lot of going back and talking about the mom who won't do X, Y, and Z test and, you know, this um, stigma that comes with those decisions that fall outside of, you know, those uh, clear lines that the providers have. But yeah, it's, it's just all very different. And I think it permeates the medical, I think the issues are really broad and permeate every facet of the medical system. You know, I got a call a few days ago from a mother who went to an ER with her son who's Asperger's highly functioning, but um, definitely mom is there caring in a very substantial way. And he answered, you know, a question wrong on the form, like a legitimate, just checked the wrong box about past suicidal thoughts, currently wasn't having any. And here we are in a situation where there's a 72 hour hold. He's um, having to undress and change in front of male guards. He's in a high level facility because he's been deemed a flight risk. He's been held down and forcibly injected with antipsychotics and doesn't remember anything from that day. He's forced to sign paperwork. I mean, not to get off on a tangent, but maybe I already did. But the point is this idea that the medical, that a provider, that a, a particular provider in our system can literally take over you as a person and now can make all decisions for you um, and extend that hold over and over again. I mean, if you think about it, there really is nothing more, I guess, powerful than that, you know? And so if we talk about power and control, I think it's, it's in the system and it's, it's apparent in many different forms. Um, and I always think about that because that's, I think where that, I just think that has something to do with what happens. This idea of power and control. So. Yeah. 
and <clears throat> and it's happening in obstetrics as well. Um, there right. are multiple cases of folks who give birth in the hospital and then lose custody of their child right. either temporarily that's, or permanently. That's where I was going with that. It's the same thing, you know. Yeah. It just looks different in different settings. But even even before the birth, um, you know, there's this this idea like nobody could force you to have a cesarean against your will. Mm, actually, they have. There have been multiple yeah. situations where physicians or hospitals have gotten court orders to perform cesareans on non-consenting individuals. This is like the far, far extreme of power and control. But as long as that exists, then all the rest exists. So this is a part of creating safety as well. Um, and this would be more in a a legal realm than in an obstetric care, which is of course why I wanted you on the call, Keisha, is how do we change that as well? But just to sum up, um, <clears throat> I, I, there's there's some really great solutions that came out of this and I just wanna circle back through them. So starting in medical school um, and talking about communicative skills, communication, um, talking about bedside manner, talking about humanistic care, um, and then for practicing physicians, um, informed decision-making, sovereignty over the birthing body, um, and increasing the information exchange. Um, these are all huge solutions. Does anyone have anything else they want to add to this list? And who's going to go out and start teaching medical students? Yeah. Yes, I want to go back it. to medical school. Um, okay. I think that uh, uh, medical students need to see births, unmedicalized births. I, I it is always alarming to me when I talk to, and, and just if we go to the business of being born, for example, that was the first time that I really saw it in my face, a group of residents say, I pretty much never saw an unmanaged birth. And I don't know how you become great at birth when you never saw someone go into labor and nobody do anything. Like, how do you even understand the fullness of the stage, right? Like sometimes people come to me and they're like, well, when I was, you know, I had my first baby, I was in labor and I was in labor for 48 hours. And sometimes that's abnormal, but it's not like, right? You weren't in, you know, you weren't in uh, active labor for 48 hours, but it all seems the same. And they have this concept that I go to the hospital, I get my Pitocin, you know, and, and, and here's the time and it's done. And I think that um, we got to start exposing, like if we want to see amazing physicians and we do, like we all want to see that, they have to have more skill level with people who are not medicalized. When we opened our birth center in uh, Marin, the whole, our goal was to offer that service to physicians. We didn't only want midwives to deliver at the birth center. We wanted physicians to have a patient who said, I don't wanna deliver at the hospital. I wanna be at the birth center and be able to use that space and share that space with midwives. But that concept is not, it's not really hard for midwives. We, we would welcome that. It's the physicians that it's difficult for. But we feel like if you have a, a patient, they should be able as if they were in, in Canada, right? To deliver where they want. So if you are comfortable doing a birth center birth and you're a physician, there are so many um, birth centers that want to open up their model, their open model to include physicians. It's really not us. But until we start teaching about unmedicated, unmedicalized birth, then the doctors will be in fear. 
and they will think that they have to do this thing. How do I catch a baby without an IV? Like I, I have to be super prepared. How do I catch a baby standing up? You know, like how let's, do I let's bring in Nathan. Be? Yeah, how do I just uh, let the mama be? And how do I support yeah. her and however she I think that all physicians have to do that. Like, I don't know, maybe some module in a birth center, do a home birth. Like you can it's it. it's easy to judge something that you don't know. And then so mm-hmm. my um chief health officer at the time we opened the birth center was a, a pediatrician. And she did not want anything to do with that birth center. She was terrified when we said we were gonna do it. And she slowly, we opened it, we did it. We brought in a consultant who was our director and it was fantastic. And she slowly graduated into the birth center. She wanted to do it. She just was terrified. So we asked her one time, we were having a challenge with the baby. Can you just come by and check the baby? You know, she, that was the start of a very great relationship because once she realized what was happening in there, she wanted to be available for every birth she could because who doesn't want to do that? It's exciting. So I think we have to start exposing physicians to what we want to see. We can't just say, here's who we want you to be. And then we don't support them in the journey to become that. And so that's what I think is at the foundation of this all is like, we're asking someone who has no experience in this thing to not be judgmental and to know how to do it. Yvonne, you're, on, you're spot on. Let's let's ha- make a challenge to all the midwives in the country that they invite physicians to their births. Nathan, what do you have to say? Um, well, thank you, Javon. You 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 said you said it all. Um, I I do want to give a little bit of pushback in the sense that I actually am on uh, of the mindset that you know, as OBGYNs are having to learn more and more. There was actually an article just out in June 2020 in the Green Journal about critical care and obstetrics. Actually, it was in the Gray Journal, AJOG. And it's like, hey, OBs are good with ultrasounds. Why don't we use OBs to also do echocardiograms? Why don't get, we get them to do fast exams for, to look for you know, intra-abdominal bleeding and all this other stuff? Because we are really, really well-trained physicians or healthcare professionals. So if that's going to be the domain of OBGYNs, what happens to the care for women who are, are, are having you know, physiologic births? I would argue that OBGYNs probably need to evolve more in the in the direction of, hey, let's get them trained in critical care even more so, because there are some patients who probably should have births in the hospital. Meanwhile, we've got midwives clamoring for the opportunity to take care of, of women who, um, who want to have, you know, quote, natural or physiologic births. And I did see a lot of that. I sought it out in, in residency. So I kind of got it very early on. I was maybe lucky. To, to wasn't Emiliano experience. your one of your he was yeah he was he was he was in my first year and so like when you have that guy give you your first lecture on the yeah. this sort of the role or lack thereof of of fetal heart rate tracing continuously in the hospital you're like oh wow so okay cool and then he left and then Stu Fishbein came and gave us a, uh, gave us a talk a couple years after that so I I was in a in LA I mean there's a lot of people that are pretty open minded there. Um, but I will say that, yes, I think that exposing residents and medical students to a normal, normal, I, I'm using air quotes a lot over here, I'm like going to fly away. Um, but the, but the, the sort of physiologic birth experience is not only good for the patients, it also reminds you as the doctor, like, oh, I don't actually have to do anything here and things generally go pretty well. So that allows me to say, great, we have colleagues here that are experts in natural physiologic birth. Let's 
bring midwives in. Let's integrate them into the system, not just the hospital system, but like birth centers, home births. Like let's get, let's, let's make more time to focus on the things that they want to focus on. Like, look how good I am with this little, this little ultrasound probe. Um, so, so that's the first thing. And then the, the next thing is, and this is something we do in, in palliative care so much, like, let's say that a baby's born, uh, uh, diagnosed with like trisomy 13 or 18 or something. It's not the OBGYN's role to do all of that counseling. In fact, it would actually be behoove the patient in the, the system. If there was a, a, a means to have a transdisciplinary approach where you have a perhaps Tracy Vogel comes in and we have a neonatologist who's trained in some basic communication. And then we have a social worker. We have a chaplain. We have the cardiac specialist that's going to talk about the pros and cons of doing a massive surgery on a baby that potentially won't even survive to three or four months of life or, or whatever, you know? So, so, I mean, you could then also bring a midwife and I actually just did a consultation a, 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 for a patient who has a trisomy 13 fetus she wants to have a home birth. And she's like, nobody's letting us do that. And it's like, I don't see why not tell me what your fears are. And it's like, well, I had a really bad experience in a prior birth and I'm just really don't want to go back in the hospital. So she's in this like strange gray area where everybody would say that's a complicated birth. Like, is it? it unless like the head's really big from hydrocephalus or something like that. I'm not so sure it is, but she's continuing to get care from an OBGYN, from an MFM. They're having multiple talks now because I said, listen, if you need me to call somebody, I will for you. But what you need is every four weeks, a group of people to get together and say, listen, here's the new information. Here's where we're at. What do we think about, you know, doing it this way or this way? And, and that's where the shared decision-making process comes in. But again, it comes back to whenever that woman and her partner uh, or, or their partner makes the decision that, that we're going to do this, then it's the, the, this, this multidisciplinary team's job to surround them with support and say, okay, then let's try to make that happen. Um, and this is the, again, this is back to the very, very basics, but we have to figure out a way to pay for that time. We have to figure out a way for the system to not just be billing based on RVUs. We need to really, we need to really identify and, and reward and incentivize that behavior. Mm. Couldn't, that's, yes, exactly. Well, Tracy, let's, um, let's wrap up with you um, and Keisha really quickly. Um, if Keisha, if you have anything to add, feel free. Uh, Tracy, what's the next step? Like, where do we go from here? Well, um, I think it's, it's looking at models that are working, um, looking to places that are doing some of these new things, like doing some collaborative work between obstetricians and midwives. Look at places that have success at having a hybrid model and find out what are they doing right and how can we bring that in? Because I, I totally agree with, the fact that we need to have more camaraderie. We need to have more of this, um, I'm gonna say this, this multidisciplinary approach or just this hybrid model. Why don't we have more midwives that work within our hospital systems? I think we need much more balance in the way things are run right now. I mean, I personally have started bringing doulas into the op operating room with patients if they have a, a relationship with them or I'll bring their midwife into the operating room, which is new. People look at me kind of funny. And I think that, you know, there are going to be a significant number of women that come from midwife centers that need hospital-based care for complications. And we should be ready to just have them blend right in. Um, when we have more information from our system that we're creating on, and, and how can I teach this effectively to all these new people, um, that's 
I'm hoping to collect data there to see, does this work at a system-wide level? If I'm training people on trauma-informed care principles, does it work? And how can we roll that out in other organizations and systems? Um, I definitely agree with training young. I've already been uh, forced my way onto a committee for obstetric anesthesia fellows and helped them. They were in the process of reworking their curriculum. So we incorporated trauma principles in there, as well as I'm on their lecture circuit now to talk about a different way of approaching patients, learning to use the ultrasound for epidurals and spinals that has to be part of their curriculum to prevent trauma for women that do want different forms of pain relief or need to have a cesarean section because that is a source of trauma. So I'm getting my trauma prevention in there. Um, but my next steps are then to work down towards the residency levels. And then ultimately, I mean, I'd love to get in there and start teaching medical students myself. I, mean, I love to teach. And if they would have me, I would love to come in there, but I will teach anybody. I mean, I had a lecture at ACOG, had a lecture at SOAP, which is obstetric anesthesiologist, all at the national level, but I still feel like it's not enough. We need to create teams of champions that all feel the same and then really start to embed ourselves, like you said, um, Javon, into that the educational level for everyone. It, it has to come from multiple levels too. Right? It has to come from the bottom up, our ground roots efforts, and then also from top down. I mean, I'm on a committee with our state governor looking at bringing trauma-informed care into different aspects. He wants our state to be trauma-informed in 10 years completely. What does that look like though? We're defining it as we go. But the point is they're focused on a different way of interacting with our communities. That's the bottom line, including our communities of women, our communities of trauma, but learning different ways to do things. So I, I just think, you know, we just all have to be incredibly proactive in what we're doing. It's awesome. Thank you to all of you. Tracy, excellent way to, to wrap up. So excited about what you're doing. Nathan, thank you thank so you. much for adding your expertise. Javon, your, your knowledge and experience is amazing. And Keisha, as always, thank you so much for participating. I would love to uh, write an abstract with this group to teach at a conference coming up. So oh. <laughs> can I can I put you all in that docket, this interdisciplinary team of uh, conversation around preventing and treating trauma? Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. And Really appreciate you all. Have a great day.